0: Bibles out. We are in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3. Can you guys hear me? Cohen, maybe turn my mic up just a little bit. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Bible in the pew in front of you, and you're also welcome to take it home. And read it. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the, the big numbers are the chapter numbers. The little numbers are the verse numbers. So we're going to be in John chapter 3. That's the big three. And then we're going to be in verses 16 through 21. Those are the little numbers there. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we need you to be with us this morning. We need it every single Sunday. This Sunday is no different. God, would you apply your word to our hearts so that we can live it out in our lives, so that the lost would come to know you, so that the church would be built up in strength and holiness and faith, and so that your name would be glorified in all the earth as it is in heaven. Amen. When was the last time that you thought about death? Maybe more specifically, I should ask the question, when was the last time that you thought about your death? Did you think about it last night as you laid your head down on the pillow when all the distractions were kind of removed? It's easy not to think about the hard things throughout the day, you're so busy, you wake up, the alarm clock slams you into reality, you're moving, you're running, you're trying to get to work, you're getting the kids ready for school, then you get to work and you're busy, you're crushing it all day, then maybe you get done and you go and you work out or whatever it is you do when you get off work, go to the kids' baseball games and softball and soccer and, and then you come home and you finally have a few minutes and you sit down and maybe you turn on the TV or open the computer or sit and scroll through your smartphone and, and then you do that until oh, you get tired and then, then you go to bed. And then you lay down and there's no more distractions. In that moment, do you ever stop and think about your death? It's a very strange thing that every single man, woman, and child in this room is going to die. And yet we never stop and think about that reality. We never talk about it. In the first chapter of his excellent book, Remember Death, uh, which is over here in the bookstall, Matthew McCullough gives us four ways that we functionally deny the reality of death in our lives in our modern culture. The first way is we just, uh, it's because of how we, we uh, it's where we die So throughout human history, the vast majority of human death would occur in the home, you know, on the battlefield or in the home. That was pretty much the two main ways that people died. So 150 years ago, even if you didn't see your grandpa dying in the other room, you knew that he was there in the other room and that he was dying. But by the 1980s, just 17% of deaths occurred in the home due to the advent of modern medicine, hospitals, and and hospice care. In our modern times, death is out of sight, and therefore it is out of mind. The second way that we deny the reality of death is through modern medicine. Modern medicine has done a, a tremendous amount of amazing things for mankind. It's allowed us to extend the average lifespan of most people in most places, including in the developing world. This is a tremendous blessing, but modern medicine has also empowered a kind of selective blindness to the reality of death. McCullough argues, our success in treating a wide variety of once fatal problems has blinded us to the fact that we have to die of something. Another way that we deny the reality of death is how we handle the dead. I'm just going to read what he says. In American culture, it's normal to put clothes on the dead as if they are alive. It's normal to place our dead in soft and sturdy coffins for comfort and protection as if they are alive. It's normal to manipulate their bodies and cover them in makeup and even set their their faces with pleasant expressions so that they look like they are alive. But underneath the appeal to comfort and preservation is a denial of the fundamental separation that has taken place. Behind the quest for a lifelike appearance is an attempt to deny the reality of death. And then finally, he goes on to talk about the way that we talk about death and the dead. In our culture, death is an unusable word. We don't use it. We don't say, yeah, did you hear about Jim? He died. That feels like it's a bit much. It's, it's crass. It's uncouth. We say, Oh, they've, they've passed away, you know. Or we'll use a euphemism if we're a little less cultured, you know. They kick the bucket, the kind of, that kind of thing, you know. They've gone to the other side. They've gone to meet their maker. And not all these are bad, but they all kind of point to the reality that we just don't want to ever say, hey, they're dead. When you think about the verse that we're going to be looking at this morning, probably the most famous Bible verse in the world and probably has been for all of Christian history, John 3.16. When you think about this morning's verse, I wonder what comes to mind. When you think about John 3.16, do you think about love? Yeah, right? For God so loved the world. You probably think about Jesus, right? That he gave his only begotten son. You probably think about faith. Right? That's the way that we receive his son. Right? Whosoever believes in him, right? Ooh, and then we argue about whosoever. And then you probably think about salvation. Will not perish but have everlasting life. Right? So when we think about John 3.16, these are the themes, the ideas that come to mind. These are the things that everyone points to and emphasizes and celebrates when John 3.16 is brought up in a Sunday school lesson or a Bible study or a sermon or even in an evangelistic encounter. But I wonder why when we think of John 3.16, when we talk about John 3.16, when we quote John 3.16, why we never talk about death. I mean, it's right there in the text. Whoever believes in him will not perish, will not die. For some reason, the word perish never pushes its way to the front of our minds when we look at this verse, but it should, it should, because it is only when we come to understand the reality of death, the horrific, dark, ugly, terrible, bleak reality of spiritual death, that we can then begin to understand the beauty of the rest of the verse. Before we can savor the sweet aroma of God's love towards us in Christ, we must first be repulsed by the stench of death because of sin. So we're going to talk about death this morning, like a lot. We're going to dig down deep into Jesus's teaching on spiritual death. So let's dig in. First, we're going to We're going to look at the the connection between spiritual and physical death to make sure we understand what Jesus is saying here. In John 3.16, the death that Jesus is referring to is spiritual death. You have to remember that in scripture, death is often used as just a a way to, to talk about and to point to and to signify what it means to be separated from the God who made us. When you think spiritual death, you should think separation from God. But we also have to remember that spiritual death and physical death are inextricably bound up with one another, right? So in Genesis, God told Adam and Eve that if they ate of the tree, they would surely die. But then they ate of the tree and they still lived. But then they died later. Well, what's happening there? Well, what God meant was if you eat of this tree, if you choose sin, you don't get me. You're going to be separated from me. And that's one kind of death. That's a spiritual death. But then physical death follows in the wake of that. You think about who we are as human beings. We are not disembodied spirits, right? We are body and soul connected together, and whatever happens in one tends to affect the other. And if you, if you don't believe me, just go visit a cancer ward and, and, and see what being physically ill can do to the spirit of someone, right? So as we encounter spiritual death, our bodies then begin to die physically devoid of the spiritual life of God the flesh succumbs. Romans 6:23 says this. The penalty of sin is death. Now, initially that's spiritual death. But then consequently that's physical death. But who dies because of sin? Well, that's what we're going to talk about next, the universal nature of this perishing. You may be sitting there thinking, "Well, Sean, that was Adam and Eve in the garden." You know, who knows how long ago, what does that have to do with me here today as I sit in these pews? That's a fair question, and it's a question that God anticipated that you would ask. Listen to what God says through the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans about how what happened in the garden affects us here today. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So, the penalty that Adam received in his flesh because of what he did is the same penalty that all men receive today because we, just like our father Adam, still sin. Think about it like this Adam ushered sin into the room, but every single one of us invites sin to go ahead and have a seat and make itself comfortable in our lives, and so we die. Now, when I say we, I mean every single human being born after Adam and Eve, and as I survey the pages of Scripture, I cannot find a single exception. I don't see an exception for someone who's young or old. I don't see an exception for someone who's black, white, yellow, brown, spotted, or dotted. I don't see an exception for the rich, and I do not see an exception for the poor. Not for the educated or the ignorant, not for male or female. You can see the universal scope of this sin problem in this morning's text. Jesus says that God sent his son to save the world. The world. Not just those really bad guys over there, not just, you know, the people who really need salvation, you know, like the, the racists and the, the pedophiles and the people who disagree with you politically. No, God sent his son to save every kind of person, the prostitute and the soccer mom, the businessman the pastor, the the president, the prime minister, and the vagabond. Everyone needs a savior because everyone has received the penalty of death because of sin. Now let's talk a little bit about the connection between death and hell. Uh, We spend a lot of time ignoring the reality of death. So let me just... Pause, let me take a moment to remind everyone in this room. uh, Not only is spiritual death real, but it is also a very big deal, one that we cannot afford to ignore. Being separated from the God who made us is a horrible, awful condition. It is the worst possible condition a human being can be in. We were created to be in union with the God who made us, and you can see that in the gospel, when the gospel tells us that if we repent and believe, we are united with Christ. What that's doing is, is, is it's undoing the separation that sin created. But as long as we remain separated from God, as long as we, we remain dead in sin, we are in a fundamentally unnatural state. We are created to be with God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, if, you, if you're sitting there, you're thinking, Sean, it's kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around the, the, the spiritual reality of, of death because of sin. I wish there was something that I could just kind of latch on to. I wish there was a picture that I could kind of look at and discern and I could feel the texture of the reality of spiritual death. I wish there was something that could just bring it into sharp focus for me. I would say, yeah, that's what hell is. That's one of the main reasons why God talks to us in his word about the consequences of our sin after we die. He's trying to bring these things into sharp focus. He's trying to give us a kind of clarity. He's trying to wake us up from a spiritual slumber where we just see the reality of death in this hazy way. In the pages of scripture, one of the ways that God explains hell is by describing it as a place where we will be eternally separated from God, the final death. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Now, lest we get the wrong idea from this verse we need to remember that spiritual death is not some kind of banishment to the land of quiet shadows. Death is not merely to enter into a state of non-consciousness. Hell is not going to be a place where just our, our, our awareness of our existence is sort of zapped away and we just kind of remain in this permanent vegetative state like we've been put into a sort of spiritual coma. That's not what Jesus says. You can actually listen to Jesus connect the themes discussed in 2 Thessalonians with the reality of hell in a very specific way. In Matthew 8, chapter 12, he says, but they will be thrown into outer darkness. You see that darkness language? Let me just go back, 2 Thessalonians. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, right? So they're going to be put away from the light of God into the darkness of hell, back to Jesus, but they will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So whatever this permanent death is going to be like, it's not going to be the kind where you just sit there and just sort of exist in a state of non-awareness. It's going to hurt so bad. It's going to be so troubling in your soul that you're going to grind your teeth in agony like a woman who's giving birth, like a man who's having his limbs sawed off on the battlefield before the invention of anesthesia. It's going to be a kind of pain that is so significant that it will bring you to tears. I want us to see the language that Jesus uses here in Matthew 8. It's the language of judgment. He says that they will be thrown into outer darkness. Not that they're, they're going to haphazardly walk their way into outer darkness. Not that they're going to be walking one way and then they're going to slip and fall and tumble down into outer darkness. Not this is just going to be the inevitable, inevitable consequences of how they're living their lives. No, they're going to be thrown into outer darkness. That is the language of judgment, of punishment, of condemnation. And it's the same language that John uses and that Jesus uses in our verse this morning. In our text, if we look at this morning's text carefully, we see that Jesus uses the word perish and the word condemn synonymously. Look at verses 17 through 18. "'For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already.'" You see that? If you believe, you won't be condemned. Look at verse 16 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that so whoever believes in him should not perish. So the kind of perishing that we do, the kind of death that we experience, is not just some natural phenomenon. It is a penalty-based death that is handed down from a holy and righteous judge who has found us guilty of a crime that is deserving of capital punishment. In our uh, cultural climate, these truths are just utterly repulsive. Utterly repulsive. And because the church in America so desperately wants to be accepted by the culture, you will find that many churches are unwilling to say what Jesus says in John 3.16. I mean, they'll use John 3.16. They'll talk about John 3.16. They'll put John 3.16 in their tracks, and they'll only focus on believe, love, sent his son, everlasting life, and they won't say a word about what we're being saved from. They won't say anything about why Jesus had to come and die in our place They will not tell people that they are dying, and I cannot imagine anything more unloving than that. So in light of this cultural moment, I just want to stop and say this as plainly as I possibly can. Without the intervention of Jesus on our behalf, God will render a righteous judgment against our sin. And because he is infinitely holy, And because our sin is infinitely heinous, his verdict against us will be severe. And in God's courtroom, there is no parole. There is no probation. There is no work release. There is no 10-year sentence with a split five for good behavior. Purgatory is a Roman Catholic myth. There is no temporary death. There is no entering into a state of death and suffering and judgment that you can then get out of once you've been purified by the fires of God's wrath. It is appointed to all men to die once and to face the judgment of God. The death that awaits all men outside of Christ is conscience, eternal, horrific, and permanent. Now, do you notice the kind of uh, pronouns I used there in that last sentence, in that last section? I was saying things like, without the intervention of Jesus on our behalf, right, God will render a righteous judgment against us in our sin. I'm using those first person plural pronouns on purpose. I'm trying to use inclusive language here about judgment because when we think about death and God's wrath and how those two things come together, we think about those people. We never stop and think about how that applies to us and ourselves. So let me be as specific as I possibly can be. Without the grace of God, in the Son of God, You are dead in sin. You are separated from the life of God. You will perish. Apart from faith in the finished work of Jesus, nothing can change that. Nothing. Not coming to church... If you're here this morning because you thought, man, I've had kind of a uh, bad week. I know I've been out there sinning pretty heavy this week. i got to make sure I hit church this Sunday to kind of balance the books. Yeah, it it doesn't work like that. No amount of sitting in these pews, no amount of going out and feeding the poor. Delisa, you want to go out and help her with her homeless ministry. That's great. Hope you do. That's not going to save you. Ministering to drug addicts, ooh, that's a tough ministry, not going to save you. Coming from this family or belonging to that particular denomination, is not going to fix your situation outside of Christ. Memorizing scripture cannot reverse God's judgment. Reaching an arbitrary prayer quota. I prayed every day for the last 360 days. And I'm going to get to 365. That cannot save you. God is not a judge that can be solicited with bribes of good works. And even if he were, there is no work that you can offer him that is not tainted by your own sin. And the more you try to offer up to God to try to earn your way back into his favor, the more you are condemned. And that's really bad news. That's the worst news. And that leads us to stop and ask, I think, well, what hope is there, Sean? I mean, geez, I kind of came here for a pick-me-up this morning. I don't know about a pick-me-up, but I do know that there is hope. And it's right here in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now we're going to talk more in the coming weeks about how the world is saved through Jesus. But what I want you to see this morning is God's heart to reverse your hopeless condition. You see that in verse 17? God didn't send his son Jesus to be the executioner. God sent his son Jesus to be the savior. Your hope this morning is is that God's heart is not infinitely bent on your destruction. Your hope this morning is that in the very nature of God, there is a measure of mercy that can save you from his measure of justice. And it is his good will, it is his desire to impart mercy to you. Ezekiel 33 speaks of God's nature in this way. He says, As I live, declares the Lord God. Right? So he's saying, as sure as I exist, what I'm about to say to you is true, so pay attention. As I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Parents, this kind of makes sense to you, right? You don't like to spank your kids. But sometimes for the sake of justice in the home, it's a necessity. Imagine that on like an infinitely grander, more holy and righteous scale in the mind of God. He does not delight to destroy us. And he is so displeased with our condition that he sent his only son to rescue us from it. Jesus comes down and he pulls our head off the chopping block and he lays his neck down in our place. He sees us there ready with our our head in the noose and he pulls our heads out and he puts his head in our place. He unstraps the electric chair and sits down and tells the man to hit the switch on him instead. He jumps in front of God's firing line and takes the bullet that has our name on it. To say it more biblically, Jesus drank the cup of wrath that was meant for us. He takes our place in the grave and he gives us his place on the throne. Why? Because God so loved the world. Because he loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his only son that if anyone believes in him, they don't have to die, but instead they can live forever. Don't you want that? Aren't you tired of being dead? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just want to say, when you hear this, doesn't it just resonate with you? Isn't it true? Don't, can't you feel the reality of your death? Like you need a, a, a bath, but something infinitely stronger, something that can cleanse you in a way that you've never been cleansed before? If that's true, don't wait another second. Run to Christ Today. If you do, you can live. I hope you see, friends, why it is so important to understand the word perishing in John 3.16. It's only when we understand the horrific nature of spiritual death that we can come back to the beginning of John 3.16 and understand the beauty and the glory of the words, for God so loved the world. But there's more. We're not done yet. So we spent basically the first half of the sermon establishing the reality that God wants to save the world. That's great. But now we have to ask another question. Does the world want to be saved? I was a drug addict before the Lord saved me. And uh, in my addiction, I did a lot of really bad things. I hurt people. And because that world is so dark, a lot of people did a lot of really bad things to me and they hurt me. But a lot of people also tried to help me. There were more than a few people who tried to rescue me from my addiction. They tried to save me from my life in the streets. And they tried to do it in different ways. Some people tried to medicate me, you know. Others tried to give me good psychological help, lots of group therapy, one-on-one, got needles put all over my body, maybe that'll get it out. What's that called again? Acupuncture, that's right. Others tried to instill in me a sense of discipline and personal responsibility. That's good, didn't work, they tried. And still others tried to give me Jesus, you know, but I rejected them all, just out of hand. I did not want their help. I did not want their love. I did not want their salvation. They wanted to save my life, but I wanted to die. And that may sound strange to you. You're sitting there like, Sean, I've never even been around somebody who smoked a cigarette. You know? I, uh, that just doesn't even make sense to me. You wanted to die, but whenever I say stuff like this to a room full of drug addicts, they're like, hmm, no, yeah, I totally get it. Every single day I wake up and I choose death over life. For an addict, verses 18 through 20 make perfect sense. Try to put yourself in that position. Let's, let's go back and read those verses again to make sure that we're, we're, we're refreshed. Whoever believes in him is not condemned Understanding of spiritual death assumes that the only possible reason that people perish is because of ignorance. It's just because they don't know that they're dying. If they knew that they were dying, if they knew that this was their relationship to God, they'd believe, they'd turn to Jesus, they'd walk into the light. That makes sense to us, but it's the opposite of what Jesus says in this morning's text. Jesus says that we perish because we choose death. Now, if that strikes you as odd or even maybe unbelievable, like, Sean, I know you're the pastor, but that's still a hard sell for me. Well, it actually gets worse than that. Jesus says more than the fact that we choose death. He he actually says in these verses, that in our natural state, we choose death because we love sin and hate God. I want to show you what I mean, and I want to encourage you, if you're kind of wrestling, this is midpoint of the sermon and you need your second wind, try to gather it from within yourself right now, because we've got to follow a sort of train of logic in Jesus' words here, okay? So stay with me. In verse 18, Jesus Is very clear. We are condemned to die because we don't believe in Jesus. Look back there. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed. So why do we die? Why are we perishing? Because we don't believe in Jesus. Okay, but why don't we believe? a layer deeper. Why don't we believe? Verse 19 tells us, because the light came into the world, but the people loved the darkness rather than the light. So to summarize verse 18 and 19, verse 18, why do people die? Because they don't believe. Verse 19, why don't they believe? Because of what they love. Now verse 20 says the same thing, it's just backwards. This is kind of the way that John writes stuff. You, when you read First John, there's a lot of this. Look at verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So in verse 19, we love the darkness. In verse 20, we hate the light. It's two different ways of saying the same thing. You have to remember from what we've seen in John's gospel that the light represents Jesus. You remember back in chapter 1, verse 4? The light shines in the darkness. That represents Christ at creation in Genesis 1, and also Christ in his incarnation as he comes back for recreation in John chapter 1. And we also know that the darkness represents the world, the flesh, and the devil. So what Jesus is saying here is that those who are perishing, what they do is they see him, and they refuse to come to him because they hate him. Or said conversely, because they love the darkness. Now we have an even deeper question we need to ask. Why do people hate God and love the darkness? What is it about the darkness that makes them drawn in there and feel safe there and comfortable there? And, and they want to be there so bad that as the light approaches them, they hate it because they know that it's going to remove them from the darkness. Well, Jesus tells us why we act like spiritual vampires. Go back and read verse 20 with me again. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest, you can think because, lest his works should be exposed. Why does the unregenerate man hate the light? Because he knows that the light is going to expose him. And he doesn't want to be exposed. He wants to keep his sin, his his precious. Even if that means he doesn't have God, that's okay. He wants his sin. Jesus says it even more explicitly a little bit later in John chapter 7. He says, the world hates me, Hey, listen, because... Why does the world hate the light? Because... I testify of it that its deeds are evil. The world hates Jesus because when he comes, he tells us the truth about ourselves. And man, nobody wants to hear that. You know, that's one of the things that I look for in a person if I'm unsure whether or not they're truly Christian or they're just kind of playing the game. I just tell them the truth about themselves and see how they react. We all kind of struggle with it a little bit, right? Nobody likes to be, you know, have their flaws pointed out, their sins identified. But what, what you'll always find is that with non-Christians, you bring out a sin, you, you point on something, you bring it to the light, and they flee from you. And they flee from the church. And they flee from the gospel. With Christians, you'll find that even if they struggle a little bit up front, even if they kind of get tense, you know, and they get nervous or they get angry and they go to get up and storm out of the room, they eventually go, And they come back. There's something about a truly regenerate person that even though it hurts, we want to live in the light. I want you to see here that according to Jesus, it is our own perverted love that kills us. At the end of the day, we perish because we choose to perish, which is why it's so important to understand what Jesus said to Nicodemus earlier in chapter three. If you weren't here for that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. But what Jesus said to Nicodemus and what he is consequently saying to us is that in order for us to believe in him, in order for us to have our affections changed so that we want to be in the light, he has to change our hearts. We have to be born again. God has to fix what's broken in us. And if he doesn't, we will choose sin over salvation every single time. Now, as, as I'm preaching this, if you're sitting here this morning and you're not really sure where you stand with God, maybe, maybe you think you're a Christian, but you're not super sure. Maybe you were baptized when you were younger two, three times but then you've lived like a backslider for a while and and, and now you're just kind of confused and, and you're hearing all this. If that's you, and if you want to know where you stand in relation to God, if you want to know if you're perishing or alive in Christ, I have a question for you. And it's probably the most difficult question you can possibly ask yourself. What do I love? What do I love? Do you love your sin? Do you love your sin so much that the idea of anyone taking it away from you is just repulsive? It makes you depressed, anxious, angry, afraid? Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, Sean, it's so hard to know. Sometimes maybe I feel that way, but other times not. It feels like my heart is just this big tangled mess like the Christmas lights when you get them out of the box after you just threw them in there last January and you're trying to untangle it all. You're thinking, Sean, I think I love God, but sometimes I'm not sure. How can I know if I love God if I'm not confused about my own emotions? Let's go back to verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things... Hates the light. If you want to know how you feel about Jesus, ask yourself this question. Do I do wicked things? Now, clarification. I don't mean do you slip up and maybe like cuss at someone who cuts you off on the road on your way to work. Tough week. God cuts you off. Man, he's getting the bird. Although that's not good. and Please don't do that. And if you do, just go ahead and take the Sixth Avenue sticker off the back of your car. (laughs) Do we have a Sixth Avenue sticker? No, okay. But also still don't do it. I don't mean if you slip up and say a cuss word every once in a while, or if you mess up and have a, a, a lustful thought about someone other than your spouse, or if you made a mistake and lied to get out of work last week. I'm not talking about that. I mean, are you habitually, constantly unremorsefully, casually, callously practicing sin. If you are practicing wickedness in this way, Jesus says that you hate the light. Jesus says that you don't love God. Jesus says that these two things can't coexist. Listen to John say it just as clearly in 1 John 1 verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and declared to you. So listen, this is interesting. John is is writing to these Christians and he's saying, we heard this directly from Jesus and now we're telling you. And what he's about to say makes me think that this is basically the Apostle John's commentary on John 17 through 21. I heard it from Jesus, I'm telling you, this is the truth. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, has purified us from all sin. So if you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, Sean, my heart is a big mess, I would be like, yeah, you're right, mine is too. And I don't want to say it's impossible, but I I would want to say it's extremely difficult to examine our own hearts with a high level of spiritual clarity. To try to disentangle the, the knots and the cords of your own heart, that's a hard thing to do. But the Bible never really tells us to do that. Instead, the Bible tells us to examine the fruit of our lives, which is an indicator of what's going on at the root in our hearts. The Bible tells us to examine the fruit of our lives and thereby gain clarity about what's going on with our soul. Am I regenerate is a murky question that a lot of Christians spend a lot of time wrestling through unnecessarily. Am I obedient is a question that the Bible tells us to ask more often. Not completely obedient, not always obedient, not obedient that I might be saved through my obedience, but am I basically obedient in light of the grace that I have received from Jesus? Now look at verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So now we have another contrast. In verses 18 through 20, we see the lover of darkness the lover of darkness and wickedness and evil shuns the light. He cowers in the darkness. He wants, he's at home in the darkness. You know, out of shame and fear of having his evil deeds exposed, he sets up camp in the darkness. But verse 21 says that those who belong to Jesus run headlong into the light. Why? To show off their righteous deeds. The unregenerate man hides in the darkness to protect, his, to protect his deeds. The regenerate man runs in the light to show off his deeds, not so that he can have any sort of vainglory or pride, but so that everyone can see what God has done through him and celebrate and glorify. So here's my big application for you this morning. if you want to have confidence that you are in Christ, then step forward into the light. Flee from the darkness. Give up your sins. And if, if, you're, if you're the kind of person who has paralysis by analysis, if you're like engineer-minded and you want like 38 steps in a manual for what that looks like, I can't help you. And I really think that might even be something that you could be using as an excuse to remain in the darkness. Well, Sean, I don't really actually understand exactly what it would look like for me to step out of the darkness and into the light. And you haven't really given me any specific details as to, what? Do you really need me to explain this to you? As you sit there in the pew and as you think about your life, don't you know The sin that you have? Don't you know what it is that you love so much that you are petrified that you're gonna have to give it up? Don't you know what it is that you're so afraid that if you lose this thing or these things that life won't be worth living? I bet you do. I'd bet my house on the fact that you know exactly the kinds of wicked deeds that Jesus is calling on you to bring into the light this morning. And that you do not need me to explain that to you. You know what's hiding in the shadows. Let it go. It's not like I'm asking you to give up something good and then get nothing in return. It's not like Jesus is asking you to give up a steak so that you can have dog food. Jesus is calling on you to let go of the most terrible, horrific thing in the world, the thing that's killing you, and he's asking you to get everything in return. This is like the best kind of buyback program ever. You give up what's killing you, and you get eternal life with God. You give up sorrow, you get joy. You give up hell, you get heaven. This sermon has had a pretty strong evangelistic bent, and I do hope that people who are here this morning who aren't Christians or who aren't sure that they're Christians were helped by that, but I need to talk to the members of Sixth Avenue before we end. Even though we have, by and large, come into the light, that's what it means to be a Christian, uh, it's, it's fair to say that there's still enough sin left in these bodies of death that we can still find ourselves clinging to wickedness. We can find ourselves hiding sin in our lives because we've become so enamored with it and then we're afraid that we're going to have to bring it out and give it up. And we don't want that. And we can even begin to hate that. And then when when people try to love us and help us and they try to lead us into the light and out of the darkness, we can begin to hate them and despise them. so what is it that you're hiding this morning? What is it that you're keeping in the darkness? What is it that nobody knows about? I should rephrase that. I shouldn't say, what is it that nobody knows about? Because God knows, right? What is it that God knows about that nobody else knows about? You don't have to tell me right here, right now. But you do need to tell God. And actually, you you probably need to tell someone else other than God because isn't it so easy to sit here and be like, okay, I'm going to confess my sin to God and then everything's going to be okay. And then it's not okay. Because you're not meant to go through this process of sanctification alone. There's a reason why God commands us in the book of James to confess our sins to one another. Listen to what he says. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another That you may be healed. There's something about bringing our sin into the light in community that allows us to work together and have spiritual healing and to come out of a state of death, even in the life of the church. This is why church membership is so important. You're not meant to do this by yourself. If you come up to me and you say, okay, I want, to con- I want to confess and I want to get together and I want my brothers and sisters to pray for me. I would just say, okay, well, who do, you- who do you belong to? Do you belong to this church? Am I your pastor? If you're just here visiting, I'm not your pastor. I love you and I want to serve you and I want to help you. But what this is talking about here is not a one-off occasion. It's not like, oh, I'm convicted, and I just need some other random Christian that I can talk to, and maybe because he's a Christian and I'm a Christian, we can help each other. No, this is, who am I doing my life with? Who do I trust? Who do I know? Who knows me? Who can I be vulnerable with? Who can I build life with? Maybe you need to have a conversation with your husband or wife after your service today, after this service today. Maybe there's something you've been hiding that you need to talk about. I've done that. It's really hard. The best way to do it is to just do it. Just pull the Band-Aid off. I've had to go and say, Amber, we need to talk. And I'll sit down and, and, then, and then I just told her. And it was really hard. But it was really good. And we prayed for one another and it brought Healing. Maybe you need to grab another church member and confess and choose life over death today. Don't wait till tomorrow because tomorrow you will probably feel like it's not that bad, that it's not that important, that actually, you know what, I think I can actually do this without any help. I probably don't. Man, that sermon, ooh, Sean really got me yesterday in the sermon, but today I realized ah, it's not. Don't do that. Do it today. Maybe you need to talk to an elder after this service because there's something that you've been hiding that you're deathly afraid of sharing, but now you realize you just cannot keep in the darkness any longer. Good. Come talk to us. Grant, Will, Shane, me. This is what our lives are given to. We are here to serve you and to love you. We're not here to put on events, we're here to care for your souls. You will never be a burden to us. I doubt that there is a single person in this room who does not need to bring something out of the darkness and into the light. I would be shocked if that were true. So brothers and sisters, do not sit there and lie to yourself. Don't tell yourself that what I'm saying right now applies to someone else and not to you. Don't do that. And and on top of that, not only should you not lie to yourself, don't make God out to be a liar. God says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you have two choices before you today, members of Sixth Avenue, Christians make God out to be a liar and pretend like you don't have any sin in your life or agree with God, tell the truth about your sin, confess it and then receive the forgiveness that he has for you, that he purchased for you in his son Jesus. That's it. Let's pray. Father, we we loathe sin and we hate it because we love you and God we confess that we don't love you like we should and we don't hate our sin like we should but we rejoice to know that you still love us and that you're still bent on saving us and that the grace that we have received in your son Jesus Christ is still available to us so father help us cling to it Help us to feast on it. Help us to drink deeply from the well of your mercies today and every day until you call us home. Amen. Amen. Let's-